Part One, Chapter Ten of Recollections of the Revolution and the Empire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Seventeen eighty nine, Versailles invaded by the mob. Several days after the events which I have just recounted, my husband received a courier announcing the nomination of his father as Minister of War. We immediately set out for Versailles. This was the commencement of my public life. My father-in-law took up his quarters in the War Department, which was installed in that part of the palace, forming the southern wing of the Cour des Ministres. He put me at the head of his mansion to do the honours, together with my sister-in-law, who was also lodged at the Ministry, but who at the end of two months was obliged to leave us. With my husband I occupied a fine apartment on the first floor. I had become so accustomed at Montpellier and Paris to state dinners that my new situation did not in any way embarrass me. There were two dinners a week of twenty-four covers, to which were invited all the members of the assembly in turn. Their wives were never invited. Madame de Lamette and I were seated facing each other, and we had beside us the four individuals of the most importance, chosen always from the different parties. Inasmuch as we were at Versailles, the men, without exception, were always in full dress at these dinners, and I remember Monsieur de Robespierre in an apple-green costume, with a mass of white hair which was well-dressed. Mirabeau was the only one who did not come, and was never invited. I often went out to supper, sometimes to the houses of our colleagues, and sometimes to those of persons established at Versailles during the period of the National Assembly. Two days after the taking of the Bastille, the 14th of July, the Comte d'Artois, with his children, left France, and went to Turin to his father-in-law, the King of Sardinia. Several persons of his household accompanied him, among others, Monsieur Denin, the captain of his guards. The Queen, thinking that the popular feeling might compromise the security of the Polignac family, arranged for them also to leave France. Madame de Polignac took with her her daughter, the Duchesse de Gramont, and I saw her for the last time on the eve of her departure. Everything in France follows the custom, and that of immigration commenced at this time. All began to raise money upon their property, in order to carry away a large sum. Nobody at that time foresaw the consequences that would follow this action. Nevertheless, the motion adopted the night of the 4th of August, which destroyed feudal rights, should have proved to the most incredulous that the National Assembly would not stop at this beginning of robbery. My father-in-law was ruined, and we have never recovered from this blow to our fortune. Entire spoliation was not decreed at this time. They only settled the rate at which property could be reacquired. But before the expiration of the date fixed for the payment of this sum, it was decided that such payment could not be made. In fine, everything was lost. By a stroke of the pen, we were ruined. Since then, we have been obliged to live by expedients, 
from the proceeds of the sale of what remained to us. At this time I did not realise that my grandmother, who during the past six months had retired to Hautefontaine with my uncle the Archbishop, was also to entirely deprive me of my fortune, upon which I had every reason to count. I could not foresee that my uncle, who still enjoyed an income of over 400,000 francs, of which he could not spend one-fourth part in the retreat where he lived, would leave, when he departed from France the following year, nearly two million francs of debts in which my grandmother was compromised. We did not at once realise all the consequences of the ruin which had come to us. My father-in-law's minister received a salary of 300,000 francs, besides his income as lieutenant-general and commander of a province. However, he was obliged to keep up an expensive establishment, and besides the two state dinners a week of twenty-four covers, we gave two elegant suppers, to which I invited twenty-five or thirty ladies. Madame Necker, the wife of the Contre-General, or, to speak more correctly, of the Prime Minister, lived on a footing similar to our own. But as she rarely went out, she received every day at supper the deputies and the savants, together with the admirers of her daughter, who was then in the full flush of her youth, interested at the same time in politics, science, intrigue, and love. Madame de Stael lived with her father at the ministerial residence at Versailles, and it was at this period that she was most involved with Alexandre de la Mette, who at the time was still the friend of my husband. This friendship, which dated from their youth, disturbed me. I had a very poor opinion of the morality of this young man, and my sister-in-law shared my feeling in this respect. Therefore, when several months later my husband completely broke with him and his brother Charles, we were delighted. Although I was on a footing of intimate relations with Madame de Stael, these never went so far as confidence in her. This woman was a strange mixture of good and bad qualities of which I have often endeavoured to explain the connection. Her good qualities were tarnished by the passions to which she easily gave way. Nevertheless, it would be wrong to think that I considered her as really a licentious person. In spite of everything, she always exacted a certain delicacy of sentiment, and she was susceptible to passions which were very strong and very ardent, as long as they lasted. Thus it was that she passionately loved Monsieur de Narbonne, who abandoned her in a very unworthy manner. At this time, the National Guard was being organised throughout the kingdom on the model of that of Paris, of which Monsieur Lafayette was generalissimo. The king himself desired that that of Versailles should be formed, and that all the clerks and employés of the ministry should become members. In the Comte d'Estaing, a bad choice was made for the commander. My father had served under his orders at the beginning of the American War, and had the most positive proofs that the Comte was lacking not only in ability, but in courage. However, on his return, he was loaded with praise, whereas my father, to whom he owed his first success, as it was the Dillon Regiment which took Grenade, 
received after the war only neglect. It was due to the request of the Queen that Monsieur d'Estaing was named as Commander-in-Chief of the National Guard of Versailles. My father-in-law appointed his son as second-in-command, which was equivalent to the real command, as Monsieur d'Estaing never occupied himself with his duties, except when he was unable to avoid it. Monsieur Bertier, who was later Prince de Wagram, a very distinguished officer of the general staff, was named as Major-General. He was a worthy man who had talent as organiser, but the feebleness of his character left him open to all kinds of intrigues. The day of St. Louis, it was customary for the magistrates and officers of the city of Paris to bring their felicitations to the king. This year the National Guard wished also to take part in this function, and the Generalissimo, Monsieur Lafayette, went to Versailles with his staff at the same time as Monsieur Bay, the mayor of Paris, and all of the municipal officers. The fish women also came, as usual, to bring a bouquet to the king. The queen received them all ceremoniously in the salon vert adjoining her bedchamber. The ordinary etiquette of these receptions was followed. The queen, as usual, wore a dress which was very much trimmed and covered with diamonds. She was seated in a large fauteuil with a kind of small stool at her feet. At right and left, seated upon stools, were several duchesses in full dress, and behind them all the ladies and gentlemen of the household. The usher announced La Vie de Paris. The Queen expected that the mayor would kneel, as he had done in previous years, but Monsieur Bay on entering only made a deep bow to which the Queen responded by a nod of the head which was not very cordial. He delivered a short address, very well written, in which he spoke of devotion, of attachment, and also a little of the fear of the people regarding the shortage of food, with which they were menaced every day. Then Monsieur de Lafayette advanced and presented the staff of the National Guard. The Queen turned red and I saw that her emotion was very great. She stammered several words in a trembling voice, and then dismissed them with a nod of the head. They went away very much displeased with her, as I have since learned. This unfortunate princess never considered the importance of the circumstances in which she found herself. She was influenced by the feelings of the moment, without considering the consequences. These officers of the National Guard, whom a gracious word would have won, went away in bad humour, and spread their discontent throughout Paris. All this increased the ill-feeling which they had towards the Queen, and of which the Duc d'Orléans was the first author. The National Guard of Versailles, like the other troops of the Kingdom, wished to have flags, and it was decided that these should be solemnly consecrated at Notre-Dame de Versailles. A deputation of the principal officers, with Monsieur d'Estaing at the head, came to request me to interest myself in the ceremony of this benediction. If anyone had told me at the time that the modest major of the National Guard Bertier, whose father was steward of the War Department, will become the sovereign prince of Neufchatel, 
and that he would wed a German princess, I should have laughed at such a tale, but we have seen others even more remarkable. I was present at this very brilliant and very solemn ceremony, where there were deputations from all the military corps present at Versailles. During this high mass, which was very long, I had time to reflect upon the march of events. Hardly fourteen months before, I had been present the day of Pentecost in the chapel of Versailles, at a meeting of the chapter of the Cordon Bleu, at which were present the king and all the princes of the royal house, of whom several had already left France. The regiment of Flandre Infanterie, of which the Marquis of Lusignan, a deputy, was colonel, had been ordered to Versailles. At this time the garde du corps wished to offer a dinner to the officers of this regiment of Flanders, and to those of the National Guard. They requested that for this purpose they should be allowed to use the large salle des spectacles de la cour, at the end of the gallery of the chapel. This superb hall could be converted into a ballroom by placing over the parterre a floor on a level with the boxes, and permission was given them. The dinner commenced rather late, and the theatre was brilliantly illuminated, which would have been necessary under any circumstances, as there were no windows. My sister-in-law and I went towards the end of the dinner to view the scene, which was really magnificent. Toasts were being proposed, and my husband, who came to meet us and to conduct us to one of the first-tier boxes, had time to tell us very low that the officers were very much excited, and that inconsiderate words had been uttered. All at once it was announced that the king and queen were coming to the banquet, a very imprudent step which had the worst possible after-effect. The sovereigns appeared in a box with the little Dauphin, who was about five years of age. There were enthusiastic cries of Vive le Roi! A Swiss officer approached the box and asked the queen to confide to him the Dauphin, in order to make the round of the hall. She consented, and the poor little fellow was not at all afraid. The officer put the child on the table, and he made the round very boldly, smiling, and not at all frightened by the cries which he heard around him. The queen was not so calm, and when the child was brought back to her, she embraced him tenderly. We left as soon as the king and queen had retired. The next day, the opposition journals, of which several were already in existence, did not fail to give a description of the, quote, orgy at Versailles. The 4th of October, there was a shortage of bread at several bakers in Paris, and a great deal of tumult. One of these bakers was hung, in spite of the efforts of Monsieur de Lafayette and the National Guard. Nevertheless, at Versailles, no one was alarmed. They thought that this revolt was similar to those which had already taken place, and that the National Guard, of whose loyalty they felt sure, would be able to control the people. Several messages which came to the King and to the President of the Chambers were so reassuring that the 5th of October, at 10 o'clock in the morning, the King set out for the hunt in the wood of Verrières, while I myself, after déjeuner, went to rejoin Madame de Valence, who had come to Versailles. We went for a drive in the garden of Madame Elizabeth at the end of the Grande Avenue, 
as we descended from the carriage to traverse the contralet we saw a man on horseback pass near us at full gallop it was the duc de maillet who cried out to us paris is marching here with cannon this news greatly frightened us and we returned at once to versailles where the alarm had been given my husband had gone to the assembly without knowing anything we were not in ignorance of the fact that there was a great deal of tumult in paris but we were not able to learn anything more because the gates had been closed and no one was permitted to go out monsieur de la tour du pin in searching in the corridors for a person with whom he wished to speak passed behind a large man whom he did not at once recognize who was saying paris is marching here with twelve pieces of cannon this personage was mirabeau then strongly allied with the duc d'orleans my husband hastened to his father who was already in conference with the other ministers the first thing that they did was to send in every direction where they thought the hunt might have led the king to warn him to return my husband occupied himself in assembling the national guard in whom he was far from having confidence he ordered the flanders regiment to take their arms and to occupy the place d'armes the garde du corps saddled their horses couriers were sent out to call the swiss from Courbevoie. messengers were sent out at every moment on the highway to obtain news of what was going on it was learned that an innumerable mob of men with many women were marching upon versailles that after this kind of advance guard came the national guard of paris with their cannon followed by a large troop of individuals marching without order there was no longer time to defend the bridge of sevres the national guard of that city had already given it up to the women and had fraternized with the guard of paris my father-in-law wished to send the flanders regiment to cut off the road from paris but the national assembly had declared itself in permanent session the king was absent and there was no one present to take the initiative in any hostile demonstration during this time the drums beat the call to assemble the national guard they came together on the place d'armes and were placed in battle order with their backs to the railing of the cour royale the flanders regiment had its left wing on the grande Ecurie and its right on the railing the post of the interior of the cour royale and that of the chapel were occupied by the swiss of whom there was always a strong detachment at versailles the gates everywhere were closed all the outlets of the chateau were barricaded and the doors which had not turned on their hinges since the days of louis the fourteenth were closed for the first time finally at about three o'clock the king and his suite arrived at full gallop by the grande avenue this unfortunate prince instead of stopping and addressing a kind word to this fine flanders regiment before which he passed and which cried vive le roi did not say a single word to them he went to shut himself up in his apartment from which he did not come out the national guard of versailles which was making its first campaign commenced to murmur and to declare that it would not fire upon the people of paris there were no cannon at versailles 
the advance guard of two or three hundred women commenced to arrive and to spread out in the avenue many entered the assembly and said that they had come to look for bread and to take the deputies to paris night came on and several gunshots were heard they came from the ranks of the national guard and were directed against my husband their commander whom they had refused to obey by remaining at their post my husband escaped by a miracle and realizing the fact that his troop had abandoned him he went to take a place in front of the garde du corps who were drawn up in battle order near the petite écurie but these troops which comprised only the company of grammont were so few in number that any idea of defence was thought impossible at this moment my father-in-law and monsieur de saint priest offered the advice that the king should retire to rambouillet with his family and await there any propositions which might be made to him by the insurgents of paris and by the national assembly the king at first accepted this plan at about eight or nine o'clock a company of the garde du corps was ordered to the corps royal which they entered by the gate of the rue de la surintendance now the rue gambetta from here they passed by the terrasse de l'orangerie under the windows of the apartments of queen marie antoinette traversed the little park and gained by the menagerie the grande route de saint cyr there was left of this troop at versailles only sufficient men to relieve the posts in the apartments of the king and queen the Suisse and the Sans-Suisse guarded their own posts. It was at this moment that two or three hundred women, who for an hour had been hovering around the gates, discovered a little door opening upon the Rue du Rang Commun, which is a prolongation of the Rue de la Chancellerie. This door gave access to a secret staircase which ended under that part of the building where we had our quarters in the Cour des Ministres some traitor had probably shown them this entrance they entered in a crowd knocking down the swiss guard posted at the top of the stairway then spread through the court and gained the quarters of the four ministers which were located in this part of the building my husband returned at this moment to bring news to his sister and myself very much disturbed to find us in such bad company he accompanied us into the chateau my sister-in-law had taken the precaution of sending her children to the house of a deputy one of our friends who was lodged in the city guided by monsieur de la tour du pin we ascended to the gallery where we found already gathered a number of persons living in the chateau who had come from their apartments to be nearer the source of news end of part one chapter ten a